0: Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Welcome back to another episode of Disastrous History. After spending some time in ancient history last week, let's bring it back to the almost modern day this week and talk about the strongest earthquake in recorded history. We're going big this week. That would be the 1960 Valdivia earthquake. Now, I want to take a moment. There are many names in this episode that I will probably butcher. I'm going to do my best, but I am, again, a native English speaker from the Midwest, and oftentimes my mouth does not quite want to make the sounds that need to be made to pronounce these properly. I have looked them up, and I will try my best. I'm sorry if I get them wrong. As I've done in past episodes on new disasters, although I did cover the San Francisco earthquake and fires in an earlier episode and didn't really explain it then, I'm going to do a down-and-dirty description of what an earthquake is, how and why they happen, and how we rate their damage. That way we all go into this knowing everything we need to know for the story. So, everyone pretty much knows what an earthquake is. The ground shakes aggressively. Pretty self-explanatory. But in a basic nutshell, what happens is two chunks of tectonic plates slip past each other or under each other, or one goes over the other. Now, what is a tectonic plate? Basically, the Earth is made up of a bunch of different plates of rock that sit on the surface of the mantle and float around and move and bump into each other. And there are two different types of tectonic plate. The tectonic plate is the Earth's crust. We all know that term, crust, from school. So, oceanic crust is one type. It's generally under the ocean. Duh and there's continental crust, which is generally not under the ocean. Pretty self-explanatory. They're generally made of different types of rock, but that would make this super quick explanation way longer than it needs to be to describe each different type of rock that's found in oceanic crust and continental crust. Just know that they are compositionally different from each other. These tectonic plates are broken up into three different sizes. First is major plates, they're the big ones. There are seven major tectonic plates. They are generally just the continents plus the Pacific plate. Technically it includes the Indo-Australian plate as one, but that is split into two with the Australian plate being the major one and the Indian plate being a minor plate. The next size is predictably a minor plate. There are a varying number of minor plates depending on the source you decide to use. A common number is seven including the aforementioned Indian plate, but some places list more than seven. And then there are tertiary plates, which are numerous and generally small breakouts from the major tectonic plates. There are a lot of different tertiary plates depending on the source you look at, just anywhere from 15 to 25. It's a wide-ranging number. It just depends on who you decide to use. So Earthquakes occur where these plates meet. These locations are called faults or fault lines. Basically, earthquakes occur when the tectonic plates moving get stuck, friction builds up as the plates continue to try and move before they break apart and start to shake. These movements can happen basically three different ways. The first is what is called a normal fault. A normal fault is one of the plates moving down and away from the other, so this is tensional stress because it's being pulled apart. So, tensional stress is like when you have a resistance band and you're pulling apart. That is tensional stress. You're trying to stretch it apart, making it more narrow. That is the normal fault. These tend to be smaller earthquakes. These are commonly found in valleys that aren't clearly made by creeks or rivers. So, something that doesn't have like a creek or river that's worn out the, the valley of erosion, those are often normal faults. The second is called a reverse fault. A reverse fault is when one tectonic plate is being pushed into another and shoves up and towards the other. So it goes one goes underneath, one goes over the top. This is compressional stretch because they're being pushed together. Makes sense, you're compressing the plates together. These are usually found along mountain ranges like the Himalayas and the Rockies and the Andes. And then the last type is called a strike-slip fault. This is when the two tectonic plates rub together going parallel to each other. This is shear stress since they are moving parallel to each other. So, like, when you have an auger inside of a combine, it's rotating around over and over again to get the, com- the corn to move back into the container. There's a pin that goes through the end of that to keep it from... Sh- breaking off so that it continues to rotate. It's called a shear pin and when that shear pin breaks the thing stops moving. That shear pin is there to prevent, to help prevent shear stress and when that stress gets too high it shears it off. That is shear stress. The most famous strike slip fault line is the San Andreas fault line in California. The earthquake that happened in 1906 in San Francisco was a strike slip fault. That was the type of earthquake that shook San Francisco and eventually caused the fires that destroyed a large portion of San Francisco. So now we know how an earthquake happens and we know what an earthquake is. What is the sequence of an earthquake? So some earthquakes are preceded by four shocks. Four are smaller earthquakes that happen before the main earthquake. Scientists are kind of split on what these actually do. Some say they are smaller events that set off a chain reaction of events that leads to the main rupture. Others say it helps relieve pressure around the fault itself, thereby making the main earthquake slightly less powerful. There have been some studies that show larger earthquakes of greater than magnitude 7 tend to not be preceded by foreshocks, which would seem to indicate that the foreshocks reduce the scale of the coming main shock. But it's not conclusive. And then obviously the big earthquake is the main shock. Whichever quake ends up being the bigger one is the main shock. So if you have, say, a magnitude 6 earthquake, and then six hours later you have a magnitude 8 earthquake, that 6 magnitude earthquake would become a 4 shock, and that 8 magnitude earthquake would become the main shock. And if you have a bigger one after that, then it would become the main shock. Whichever one is the biggest in a in that time frame is the main shock. And then after the main shock are aftershocks. Aftershocks are the crust readjusting itself after the main shock shook everything all up. I said shock a lot and it stopped sounding like a real word. So we have what's called an epicenter. That is not the actual place where the earthquake starts. That is a very common misconception. The earthquake actually starts, at least the main shock actually starts at the hypocenter. That is the location underground where the actual fault happens. The epicenter is where the earthquake starts at the surface above the hypocenter. So the epicenter is not where the earthquake starts. That's just the first place on the Earth's surface that is directly above where the earthquake starts. Now let's get into the rating system. So, for most people, they hear the phrase Richter scale when talking about rating an earthquake. But the Richter scale is no longer used anymore. What we use now is called the Moment Magnitude Scale. The Moment Magnitude Scale is based on an analysis of all the waves form recorded from the earthquake. So, in this episode, when I say magnitude 7 or magnitude 8, I'm not talking about the Richter scale. I'm talking about the Moment Magnitude Scale. In order to calculate the moment magnitude, they take the strength of the rock located along the fault, usually the type, the size of the area of the fault, and the distance the fault moved, and multiply all that together. That is called the moment. Then they take the log base 10 of that number, multiply it by 2 thirds, and subtract 10.7. That gives you a magnitude that is similar to the Richter scale, but it's a little bit different. It's still measured the same, though. It's still a scale from 1 to 10 with decimal numbers and all that. Each whole number increase represents a tenfold increase in earthquake amplitude. So a 2.0 magnitude earthquake is 10 times a 1.0 magnitude earthquake, and so on and so forth. But each whole number increase is a 32-fold increase in energy release. So the amplitude is the distance between the waves on the actual recording. The energy release is how much energy is being released into the Earth. So to describe that, basically a magnitude 5.0 earthquake releases the same amount of energy as 1.8 million kilograms of TNT. A magnitude 6.0 earthquake releases the same energy as 56 million kilograms of TNT. That's the actual energy released by the earthquake. You just multiply it by 32. Now, the next one isn't as scientifically accurate. It's to measure the shaking. It's not even really to measure the shaking. It's to describe the level of shaking of the earthquake. It's basically the intensity. For that, we use a scale called the Modified Mercalli Intensity Scale. The scale is rated in roman numerals from 1 to 12. it is not at all based on any scientific data only observations it ranges from a 1 which is not felt to a 12 which is everything is all bad everything is collapsed things were tossed in the air because the ground shook so much we definitely felt that oh please make it stop the scale of this is often dependent on how far underground the hypocenter is the farther underground the hypocenter the more the seismic waves are absorbed by the Earth's crust. So if you have one that's, you know, 40 miles underground, it's not going to shake much at the surface because it's been absorbed by the Earth's crust. But if you have one that's, you know, only two miles down from the Earth's surface, then you're going to have a ton of shaking up top. It's all about relativity. That's why this one scales so much, and is based on damage observed rather than actual scientific data. It's a lot like the Enhanced Fujita Scale, where the Enhanced Fujita Scale is basically based on observational damage rather than actual scientific data because it would be so hard to get actual scientific instruments inside each and every tornado. It's hard to have shaking intensity scales everywhere an earthquake could shake. Makes sense. And Unfortunately, that's not all earthquakes do. Sometimes earthquakes, especially those that occur under the ocean, cause tsunamis, and they can also trigger volcanic eruptions and landslides and floods. And just for good measure, we're going to talk about the one that caused all of those. So the earthquake we're going to talk about today happened in Chile in 1960. Chile is officially the Republic of Chile. It is a country in western South America in between the Pacific Ocean on the west and the Andes on the east. It's a long, narrow, skinny country that is basically sandwiched between the Andes mountain range and the Pacific Ocean. It stretches a good almost half of South America north to south. It is the southernmost country in the world, just barely edging out Argentina and New Zealand. And it is known for being one of the most stable countries in South America. I mean, no country in South America has been technically stable since they found independence on the whims of Simón Bolivar and José de San martin but it's enjoyed some relative stability. The earthquake specifically happened right off the coast of Valdivia, Chile. So let's go to the beginning of Valdivia. At the time of the arrival of Spanish conquistadors, the area that would become Valdivia was inhabited by the Jijiche in a large village called Anil. I don't know if I pronounced either one of those right. It was an attempt. After the Spanish conquistadors came through, they founded the town of Valdivia, which was founded on the banks of the Valdivia River. In 1552, by Pedro de Valdivia, who was the governor of Chile at the time. Because, of course, he would name it after himself. That's what everybody did when they were colonizing North and South America. It was just, "Eh, I found it, I may as well name it after myself, or whatever king or queen was in charge at the time. But the Spanish conquistador felt really proud of himself, so he was going to name it after himself. It was the fourth city founded in the Chilean area and the southernmost city founded in the Americas. Chile was a Spanish colony under the control of the Viceroyalty of Peru at that time. In a not-at-all-surprising coincidence, a massive earthquake is said to have occurred in Valdivia on December 16, 1575. This one is estimated to have been about 8.2 magnitude. About an hour and a half before nightfall, the earth began to shake and destroyed what is claimed to be every single building in the town. Many people were unable to escape their homes and died in the collapsed buildings. One crazy thing that was reported was a Spanish soldier by the name of Don Pedro de Lobera saw the Valdivia River divide in half, the center was dry, with one side flowing the normal way towards the Pacific, and the other side flowing backwards back up into the Andes Mountains. How true this is, well... Who knows, but it's a wild claim and I figured I would include it because it's interesting to think of a river flowing two different directions. There was also claimed to be a massive tsunami that washed dead fish onto the shores and left them there. It's claimed the wave traveled three leagues inland. People resolved to sleep in the fields because there were so many aftershocks. Some are said to have drowned in those fields when the tsunami came after they decided after the main quake to sleep in the fields. The tsunami came and drowned them while they were, you know, sleeping in the field. The aftershocks happened for 40 days after the main shock. They opened chasms in the fields and swallowed some people. And then, a hill some distance from the city is said to have collapsed and cut off the Valdivia River, letting the river run dry. And then, of course, that didn't last long before bursting open and flooding the surrounding countryside in the city of Valdivia Again, ripping up any houses that happened to be left, yanking trees out, roots and all, and just generally causing even more destruction for the already smacked by a massive earthquake, smacked by a massive tsunami, and now being flooded by a backed up river. Luckily, the magistrate had been afraid of this exact thing happening for several days and had evacuated the lower area of the town into a higher area of town, thereby saving many lives. Sadly, it's reported that 1,200 Native Americans perished in the flood when they did not, either were not allowed to join the evacuation, which is probably most likely, or refused to join the evacuation. After that, the city was abandoned after several wars with the Hiyuche and Mapuche tribes nearby. It was briefly occupied by the Dutch in 1643 before they too were driven out by the local Native American tribes, and then it was retaken by the Spanish and repopulated by 1684. And then, in 1737, it got hit by another earthquake on Christmas Eve. But remember, this is the Southern Hemisphere, so Christmas Eve is actually in the middle of summer. This one doesn't have a ton of good sources on it, we just know it happened. We don't really know much about it, we just know there was an earthquake in 1737 on Christmas Eve. Oh yeah, and just for good measure, a third huge earthquake happened in 1837 because the earth absolutely despises the town of Valdivia. And with that, we have arrived at 1960. The population of Valdivia in 1960 was around 130,000 people, give or take. Now I want to make sure I give you guys full context of 1960 Chile. So today, Chile is without a doubt one of the most stable countries in the entirety of the Americas, North America included. From its Declaration of Independence from Spain on February 12, 1818, after José de San Martín and the Army of the Andes ended up kicking out the Spanish royalists for good, until now, there have been relatively few coup attempts compared to the other South American countries after independence. I mean... Bolivia has had 23 attempted coups since 1950, but we're not here about Bolivia, we're here about Chile, and Chile at this time was, to its credit, relatively stable. It's really hard to be completely stable, but they were doing a very good job. They were pretty on par with the United States at this point. Jorge Alessandre was president, and by all accounts did a, I guess, mediocre job depending on your outlook. Unemployment was falling and the economy grew. Unemployment was falling because he put a cap on wages, which, you know, upset many of the average people because they wanted higher wages, obviously. That was basically his one major issue. There was a coal mine in Lota, Chile that went on a massive 97-day strike. On May 21st, 1960, 35,000 people from that strike in Loda were marching on Concepcion on foot. Concepcion has always been one of the major cities in Chile ever since its founding, so that's why they were headed there and not towards Santiago, which is the capital of Chile. Also, it would have been a very, very long walk to Santiago from Loda. But remember that date, May 21st, 1960. 35,000 people walking. Just remember it. Now, to properly tell this story, we need to start at the beginning of this earthquake sequence. Because the Valdivia earthquake was not the first earthquake in this sequence. Which is interesting considering it was a 9.5 magnitude earthquake. The Valdivia earthquake had multiple foreshocks. So, it's Saturday, May twenty-first, 1960, in Concepcion, Chile. The citizens of Chile were preparing to celebrate their naval day in honor of the 1879 Battle of Iquique, which was a naval battle between Chile and the alliance of Peru and Bolivia. This would not be happening, though. At 6.02 a.m., Concepcion began to shake hard. Like, aggressively hard. This first foreshock would come in at a whopping 8.3 magnitude. And remember from earlier, the main shock is always the strongest earthquake. This foreshock would easily put it in the top 40 of strongest earthquakes recorded all time. Like, ever. The first foreshock would kill about 150 people and flatten a good portion of Concepcion, which has its own history of devastating earthquakes. There are a lot of earthquakes in Chile, and they are, 9 times out of 10, ridiculously strong. So Concepcion has been destroyed numerous times throughout its history as well. Oh yeah, and remember those miners that are walking on foot to Concepcion? Luckily, they were all outside because they're right in the middle of a magnitude 8.3 earthquake that's going off beneath their feet they decided that it would be best to break off their strike and go home because who wants to be that far from home out in the open with 35,000 other people when the earth is throwing a temper tantrum underneath your feet? Certainly would not be me. But the shaking was not over. Hell, the foreshocks weren't even over. Between 6 a.m. on May twenty-first, 1960, and 3.11 p.m. on Sunday, May 22nd, 1960, there would be 8 more foreshocks that measured over a 5 in magnitude. The last one, a rocking 7.8 magnitude earthquake, hit it right around 2.55 p.m. on May 22nd, 1960. This one kicked off several small tsunamis. These tsunamis were not much more than 15 or so feet in height, and uh, they would not matter for long. It's going to get way worse. It can always get worse. At 3.11 p.m. Sunday, May 22nd, 1960, the main shock at a magnitude 9.5 hit. This was the most powerful earthquake in recorded history. There have only been six earthquakes in recorded history above a 9.0 and one of those is only estimated, and it also happened in Chile way back in 1730. Like I said, the Earth absolutely despises the country of Chile. The length of the rupture of the 1960 earthquake, so the line the earthquake split along, was about 600 miles long. The shaking would last a full 10 minutes. It took 10 minutes to go the entire length of the rupture, and it shook the entire time. The country of Chile was literally stretched apart. I've seen varying ranges of how much Chile actually gained in land because of the shaking, but it's a sizable amount, and I don't really want to give you a number because it's just going to be an estimate. It's a lot. Several hundred football fields of area Chile gained, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when the entire Earth is stretching apart, it's a lot. The earthquake was caused when the Nazca Plate, which sits underneath the Pacific Ocean, was shoved further under the South American Plate. The earthquake was so strong, it moved the Earth's axis slightly and changed the length of the days. This happens fairly regularly with super strong earthquakes. It happened again in Chile in 2010. It happened with the 2004 Indian earthquake under the Indian Ocean. It happens not super regularly, but it does happen, and it's not like a noticeable difference in time. It's not like it shaves 10 minutes off a day. It's usually a couple milliseconds shorter or a couple milliseconds longer, something like that. Still, that's crazy. When you change the Earth's axis enough because of how much energy is released, that's wild. By the time the shaking stopped, Valdivia was mostly on the ground. Massive fissures opened in the ground. Houses sank in the ground as soil liquefaction occurred. The entirety of Valdivia's water supply system was destroyed. Homes were literally split in half, with one part falling into the ground and one part falling the other way. Bridges collapsed. Roads were split into different parts as the soil underneath them liquefied. This cut off basically all ground transportation into the area. And I've said soil liquefaction a couple times. I should probably explain that. Soil liquefaction occurs when the weight of the soil is transferred through vibrations to any water in the soil. Since water has basically no ability to withstand sheer stress, the soil then drops. Basically, it liquefies. Massive landslides are often caused by soil liquefaction. And that's what happened here. Several massive landslides occurred that destroyed roads cut off rivers, and it, the actual level of the ground in and around Valdivia changed drastically due to this. Valdivia lost several thousand acres of farmland underwater because of the water coming up through the soil because of soil liquefaction. The only thing that saved this from being worse was the depth at which the earthquake occurred. At 21 miles down, it kept the Mercalli scale down somewhat, allowing for some buildings to survive. It was still a 9.5 earthquake, so there was a lot of damage, but it was not as bad as it could have been, all things considered. And the other thing that helped was the foreshock that happened 15 minutes before this earthquake had brought a ton of people outside. So they weren't inside when the buildings collapsed, so they were saved from dying in the building collapsed. But, unfortunately, the danger isn't only the shaking, and the danger had only just begun. One interesting story that I found regarding the shaking itself comes from a man named Jose Argomedo. He had originally believed that the shaking was actually nuclear war. He was out on his horse in the middle of one of the pastures, and when the shaking started, he really thought the United States and the Soviet Union had started firing nukes at each other, and he really wasn't out of the realm of possibility here since this was in the middle of a stare-off between the Soviet Union and the United States, one of many, but one of the more famous ones, because on May 1st, 1960, The Soviet Union had shot down a United States U-2 plane and and captured the pilot and some of the equipment, proving that it was not, in fact, a civilian weather-monitoring aircraft from NASA like they claimed and was, in fact, reconnaissance airplane. So tensions were high, and it's not out of the realm of possibility that it could have been nuclear war. Thankfully, it was not, but, I mean probably would have been all the same for him since he had to live through, you know, a 9.5 earthquake and then all of the stuff that happened after it. So, in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake, the tsunamis began. The ocean began to pull backwards for a few minutes, then unleashed a massive wall of water on the Chilean coast. At least one of those tsunami waves is estimated to have been 80 feet in height and damage was found as far inland as 2 miles from the shore. As the water had started to pull back that would create the tsunami that devastated the coastline, ships became stranded on the exposed beach. When that tsunami wave came back, they would then be smashed by the tsunami that hit the shore. There are stories of boats being pulled out into the ocean by the tsunami, then being picked up by the wave and smashed against the ground and sinking. Several boats that sank during the tsunami can still be seen sticking out of the water, but it wasn't just one tsunami. It was multiple waves smacking the shore over and over and over again. People were clinging to trees, hoping that the next wave wouldn't be the one to take their tree or their hiding place or the building they were stuck on. They'd climb up on the roof of the house and hang on for dear life, just hoping upon hope that the next massive tsunami that came through wasn't the one that broke the thing they were clinging to, or hoping beyond hope that there weren't any more tsunamis coming, that the shaking would stop, and that they could get down and figure out what to do. One sad story of a man named Ramon Atala caught my eye. Mr. Atala was relatively wealthy and had survived the earthquake. He owned a plantation outside of town and several warehouses in town. At some point between the first and the second tsunami waves that struck the coast of Chile, he decided to go into his warehouse instead of heading to higher ground to save himself. And unfortunately, that's right when the second wave hit and washed him away. Some witnesses say his wife was able to grab him by the hair from where she was taking refuge, but the wave eventually pulled him away and his body was never recovered. There are multiple reports of people getting on top of roofs that had been ripped off by previous tsunami waves and just riding them like a boat trying to make it out, clinging to trees that were floating in the water, just hoping that A, they wouldn't get sucked under, and B, they wouldn't get hit by any other debris in the floating water. But the tsunamis weren't the only issues going on at the time. We also have those landslides I mentioned earlier. Luckily, these didn't cause major damage to actual people or houses, because the majority of them were way up away from the towns up in the mountains. But they did take out several roadways, and three landslides blocked the San Pedro River. The San Pedro River starts at Lake Renehu and travels from east to west down through the center of Valdivia. The first area of the San Pedro River that was blocked off was only 85 feet high. Each subsequent landslide was slightly higher than that. And I say only 85 feet, that's really tall. But the issue is, the lake was building up water behind that landslide. So if it got to above that 85 feet, it was going to overflow it and come cascading down the now dry river and re-flooding Valdivia again. The San Pedro River moves at about 400 cubic meters per second that's about 1400 cubic feet per second if the water got higher than that 85 feet well let's just say it would be a whole lot of water coming down the mountain that the san pedro river absolutely could not handle again drowning Valdivia in yet another flood so they had to find a way to prevent that dam from bursting all at once and what's the best way to prevent a dam from bursting all at once? That's right, you dig some canals in it and let the water out bit by bit. So, first they got some bulldozers to try and create canals through the landslides to allow the water to release slowly. But the bulldozers kept getting stuck in the mud, and workers were spending more time digging out the bulldozers than they were digging the rapidly filling Lake of Death water. So... They literally decided that they're going to dig the channels by hand with shovels. It took until the end of June to get the canals ready, but they did it, and they saved the town. It's alleged that at least three workers died trying to do this, but they saved the town. They dug these channels out to allow this water to escape by hand to save this town. The water was released slowly over the next several months and were successful. And the engineer in charge of all this was named Raul Saez. And he absolutely deserves a place in the disastrous history Hall of Heroes. Because I can't imagine having to tell these people that we're going to do this and we're going to do it by hand because these bulldozers aren't working. And have the actual ability to carry that plan out and basically save what would at eventually probably end up being several towns at that point, because it's a good distance from Valdivia to the lake. It There would have been several towns that would have been completely wiped off the map if all of the water that had built up behind those landslides was allowed to burst on its own, at its own pace. It would have been another devastating disaster for the area. But That's not the happy ending of this. Oh, you thought we were done with disasters from this one event? Oh, no, 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 no. We're going to take a trip back to those tsunamis real quick. Because sound waves travel in all directions. Which means those tsunamis were going in all directions. And it, 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 it didn't just hit Chile. Oh, no. 14 to 15 hours after the actual earthquake happened, a tsunami smacked into Hawaii. 35-foot waves swept through the town of Hilo, Hawaii. Hilo is located on the island of Hawaii, for those that don't know. Yes, there is an island called Hawaii. You see, there had been tsunamis in 1952 and 1957, so some people just didn't take the threat seriously and then combined with the first eight waves of the tsunami being only about three feet tall, people just really didn't think anything was going to happen. There are multiple pictures of people standing and watching the waves come in, because they're just these tiny little three-foot-tall waves. What's the big deal? Why is there a warning for this tiny tsunami? And many people had lived through 52 and 57, which ended up being a whole bunch of... I mean, there was a tsunami, but it wasn't anything major. They didn't have anything really to worry about. Uh, Yeah, that's not how this one's going to go. The next waves after those eight three-foot-tall waves were about uh, 35 feet tall, and they smacked the island. It killed 61 people and caused about $75 million in damage which is about $665 million in damage today. But it didn't stop there. A full 24 hours after the earthquake, the tsunami arrived in Japan at the islands of Honshu and Hokkaido and took the lives of 119 people. There it caused about $50 million in damage, or right around $400 million today. The tsunami would also hit the Philippines and take the lives of 32 people there. And finally... Massive earthquake most likely caused the Cordon Calle volcano to erupt. A relatively small eruption, and literally only seen by a United States Air Force plane flying overhead, it caused no fatalities or injuries, and honestly, it didn't really get much attention. Probably because the entirety of Chile was focused on trying to fix the massive issues happening along the coast, and the giant earthquake that just struck, and the tsunamis that smacked repeatedly the same area over and over again. And the volcano's in the middle of nowhere, and no one lives there, so no one really cared, to be honest. It was just interesting that a volcano erupted because of this giant earthquake. The final death toll of this whole scenario in Chile is only an estimate of about 1,600 victims. Between the shaking, the tsunamis, and the landslide, it's hard to be able to get an accurate accounting of all victims. Combined with the relative difficulty of getting actual land-based travel into the area in the aftermath of the destruction, it was hard to find everyone that was missing. It's also estimated about 2 million people were homeless in southern Chile due to the earthquake and tsunamis, and that would have really put pressure on being able to get an accurate death toll. I've seen death tolls range in this from about 1,400 to about 7,000. We really just don't know, because there are some places where entire families would have been swept away and their bodies may never have been found because there was no one there to look for them, which is super depressing. It's very likely that entire families were just completely wiped out, and no one knows because neighbors were also completely wiped out. There are numerous small villages that existed in Chile around that area that are just completely gone now that no longer exist, were taken out by either the earthquake or the tsunami, or a combination of both, we'll just never truly know what the official death toll was from this massive event. And the total cost of damage we will also probably never know, but the estimate was about $400 million in 1960. That's about $3.5 billion today. It was a massive, massive event. And, unfortunately, yes, it could happen again. Another earthquake struck Chile in 2010 that was an 8.8 magnitude. This one was north of Concepcion, so they gave Valdivia a brief break. But it is very likely there will be more earthquakes in the area again, and it's likely that they could be just as powerful, if not more powerful, than the one that struck Chile in 1960. It's not out of the realm of question that there would be a 9.6 or 9.7 earthquake that fires off further up in the crust, closer to the surface, that gives us a Mercalli intensity of 12 over a giant area and levels most of central southern Chile. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Remember, as always, you can follow me on Twitter at Disastrous History. That's Disastrous, H-S-T-R-Y, without the vowels. And on Instagram at Disastrous History, spelled correctly. You can also follow me on TikTok, where I do videos covering some disasters that will be covered in future episodes and some smaller ones that don't get the attention they deserve. And also talk about other disaster-related things to be aware of. So if you want to follow me on TikTok, it's also Disastrous History. You can also read all of the episodes in article form on my website, DisastrousHistory.com. And you can send me an email if you want to let me know how I'm doing at DisastrousHistory at gmail.com. And one thing I want to add at the end of this episode is you should absolutely never, ever drive through floodwaters. No matter how deep it looks, no matter how shallow you think it is, do not drive through floodwaters. You will float away and you will drown faster than you think. And with that, stay safe and remember to check your smoke detector batteries.